0: Father, thank you that your word is open before us and that we have your Holy Spirit in our hearts to teach us. Pray you would come now and give us light to our eyes and also incline our hearts and our wills to follow after you. In Jesus name, amen. All right. So here's, here's another um, view of separation that comes from a Netflix movie that I saw this week. Um, so Sarah and I watched this movie on Netflix called The Half of It. It terrible. Sarah thinks it's terrible. It's a bit of a sad and confusing movie, but I, I think the characters are really great. Um, and it's one of these high school dramas about finding your soulmate, only it's a bit more complicated than usual. And at the very beginning of the movie, they play this little animation of uh, an ancient Greek myth, because uh, the lead character is writing a, a paper about Plato. Um, and this little animation of the Greek myth uh, shows that humans started off with four arms and four legs and a single head with two faces facing opposite directions and it says that we were united and we were happy we were whole and complete Um, but then it says that um we were so complete that the gods fearing our wholeness would quell our worship cleaved us in two and so since then humanity has spent the rest of our existence longing for that connection to be remade um, searching for our other half the missing piece that can make us whole again you can see why this is a great myth for a teen romance movie um, and the myth the greek myth says that our present misery is really all god's fault for separating us and the solution is that we find our soulmate so the solution is found in among the world of men and the problem is found in god um, And the movie itself kind of debunks this myth um but then it also kind of believes it at the same time when you look at where the story goes and i think that's exactly what our culture does with it like nobody would say that that's really what happened but then a lot of us behave as though that's what happened So have you ever met anyone who believes that it's the next relationship that's really going to make them happy, that's going to fulfill their lives, or that marriage is what's going to make them truly happy, or having children, or even if we broaden the idea that I'll be happy if I have better friends or a stronger community around me. And I think the reality is that if we really think that's going to solve our problem, then we're thinking a lot more like that Greek myth than we are the story of the Bible where we truly came from. Because the truth, of course, is that God did not make us miserable by separating us from our soulmates. The truth is different. Instead, we made ourselves miserable by separating ourselves from God. And no amount of romance is ever going to fix that. But nevertheless, I think there still is a seed of truth in that Greek myth, isn't it? Um, And what makes false narratives compelling is that they're not completely wrong. Um, Because once upon a time, God did divide us. He did separate and fragment the human family. Uh, that's what happened at the Tower of Babel. So it's important that we look at this story and see just is it, how close it is to the Greek idea. Like what are the differences? Um, so I'm gonna show you the Tower of Babel. I'm gonna put it up on the screen because it's quite short. And also I wanna talk about how this story is structured. There it is, should be able to see that. All right, so um, it's color-coded. What I want to say, first of all, about this story is it's really, really beautiful. Linguistically, this is one of the tightest, cleverest, and most poetically perfect passages in the Hebrew Bible. And without getting into too much detail of the Hebrew itself, I want to try to show you how it's put together. So I've color-coded the verses here to show you the structure. The first four verses, going red, blue, green, yellow, give us a four-step sequence of humankind's situation, action, counsel, and intention, all right? So red's humanity's situation, blue is humanity's action, green is the counsel they take with one another, and then four is humanity's intentions. Then the passage pivots in verse five with the purple verse when God comes to see what's up, and then the last four verses mirror the first four going out again. So, Yellow is God's intention, then green his counsel, blue his action and red the final situation. And this mirrored structure is called a chiasm. It's one of the ways that the authors of scripture made the stories memorable in a mostly oral culture. And there have been a good number of chiasms discovered in the Old Testament, but the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 is widely considered to be the best example. It's linguistically breathtaking. So let's look at it step by step. So first we'll look at the red verses. uh, Verses 1 and 9, lines A and A prime. So these are the initial situation and the final situation. So the story begins with the whole earth having one language and it ends up with many languages. Those words I've put in bold uh, in those verses are words that appear in both parts of the chiasm in the Hebrew. So the vocabulary reinforces the structure. So both verse 1 and verse 9 talk about the whole earth, and they both talk about language. So that's the initial and final situation. Now let's look at B and B' prime, which are the verses in blue. These are the action verses, okay, so the action of the people in verse two is to gather and settle, but the counteraction of God in verse eight is to disperse and scatter them. This pair of verses has the weakest linguistic connection, it's just the one word there, (laughs) describing the location of the action. Um, But the reason for that lack of language overlap is probably that the actions are totally dissimilar, they're opposites, gathering against scattering. All right, so there's not too much to say about those red and blue verses because these are simply factual. They're describing the situation and the actions, the things that happened. Uh, But as we go deeper into the center of the story, we go deeper into hearts and minds. The next we have the green verses, C and C prime. Now, these are the council verses. Both sides take counsel. They say to each other, come, let us. So in verse 3, the people take counsel and agree, come, let us make bricks. And in verse 7, God takes counsel and agrees, come, let us go down and confuse their language. And we notice in both cases, because of the direct speech, that we're looking here at carefully considered plans. These aren't random or casual acts. Neither side is acting on a whim, but both people and God are taking counsel and making a decision. So that brings the picture into a a bit of clearer focus, but there's still more to say. And the yellow verses take us in deeper still because they let us in on the heart intentions behind the decisions. So D and D prime are the intention verses. Let's look at these most carefully. The intention in the hearts of the people was to build a tower with its top in the heavens. And they state two reasons for wanting to do that. First, to make a name for themselves. And second, to avoid being dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You see those in verse four. And we must recognize that both of these intentions of humankind are acts of mutiny against God because God designed people for the purpose of living in relationship with himself. And God wanted to dignify those people by, by having them fulfill their calling to be his worshippers. And he wanted them to derive their sense of identity and honor and their name and, yes, their happiness from him. That was his design for them. And at the same time, God called those same people to spread out around the earth in order that they could steward it, love it, develop it, and take care of it. They had a responsibility to the earth and a job to do and so by gathering together and building a tower these people were saying we don't want god's name for us we want to make our own name and we don't want god's job for us we'd rather stay here and be together so in both those ways the tower is an act of mutiny and another point is that jewish tradition says and i think this is probably right that the idea of a very high tower came to the people because of the flood So the idea being that if we can build up high enough, we never need to fear a flood again and we'll be immune from God's judgment. Then we can do whatever we like. You see that? So that I think was the attitude in people's hearts when they built the Tower of Babel. But now let's look at why God responded the way he did, because God's heart intentions are there in verse six. God says in his own divine counsel that this scheme that they've hatched, it's actually going to work. See that? He says, this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible. Collaborate. The harm they will be able to do to themselves and the world is much greater. As Sarah said to the children, their behavior is worse when they're together, so they need to be separated. Now notice that each of these intention verses, the yellow verses, links to one of the situation verses, the red verses at the beginning and the end. So look at that. The people are afraid, in line D, verse 4, of being dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And that's exactly what it says at the end, in verse 9, line A prime. I underlined the repeated words that made that connection. They were dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Exactly the same language. And then the one thing that God identifies as the problem in D prime is that they have one language, and that's the exact same language that's used in verse one, um, statement made in the first line, line A, that the people have one language. So you notice there that A connects to D prime, and A prime connects to D, and that's another way that this sto- this um, telling of this story has just perfect symmetry. Uh, It shows that despite all the efforts of humankind to avoid the very one thing that God wanted, God knew just how to get what he wanted in the end. All right, so now we come to the center of the passage, the purple verse. The story pivots in the middle in verse 5 when it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And there's, uh, there's a little bit of scornful comedy in this verse, because although the mutiny of humankind is very serious, the great tower they've been building is, is pretty puny. Uh, the Lord has to come down from his great height in heaven to see what they've been up to. What's that speck on the ground down there? Let me go down and take a closer look. Um, It's obviously no threat at all to heaven. Nothing in the devices of men ever is. God laughs at all of them. But it is a great threat to the people themselves, to the people that God made and the people God loves. So that's the reason that God acts, for the protection of his own people. And it might seem like a severe mercy, the dispersal of people into nations that can't understand each other and all the wars and persecution and bloodshed that have come from that. But as severe as it is, it really is a mercy because it actually limited the damage that people would do. So that's how Genesis 11 is put together. And I hope I've given you a little bit of a sense of how artfully it's been done. It's a story all about the confusion of language. And it's composed using some of the most orderly and deliberate language in the whole Bible. So, um, I have a a Jewish Hebrew scholar who I really love called Robert Alter, and he said about this passage, the prose turns language itself into a game of mirrors. Isn't that beautiful? The prose turns language itself into a game of mirrors. All right, so I love talking about the linguistics, but we really need to talk about what it all means. Um, And so I want to talk about this idea of gathering and scattering, of people being separated. Um, Because the Greek legend that we heard at the beginning of people being ripped in half, the idea is that people being together is always good and being apart is always sad and lonely, right? And I think our hearts kind of like that message, we sort of naturally believe that. You're incomplete by yourself like half a person. But when we think about this idea of togetherness and separateness, the Bible's take on it is much more nuanced than that. Um, because it says on the one hand yes together is good because it's only when we're together that we can show love and experience fellowship and serve one another which are all good and godly things when god made the world in the first place the only thing that wasn't good was that man was alone and in the end the bible's vision of heaven is a city where the human family is together all in one place all at one wedding banquet table with people from every tribe and language and nation and tongue reunited after our division at Babel. So together is good, and as Sarah said, there's a plan for the division of Babel to be healed and people being brought back together again. Now, when we think about that heavenly banquet table, we also notice that even though our ethnic and cultural differences came in after the fall and as a result of God's discipline at Babel, they are still preserved into all eternity and they're never erased. Right. And our languages are preserved, too. In heaven, we can expect to hear a multitude of different languages, even though those came in at Babel. Now, our ethnic distinctions are kept because they're good. They help humanity to image God more completely. And so today we can now learn more about our maker through our differences from each other than through our sameness. And Pentecost reinforces this point when the Holy Spirit comes and gives the church a foretaste of that heavenly future. Because the Holy Spirit gave the first disciples the gift of speaking in many different kinds of tongues. And that effectively reverses the confusion of Babel. I'm sure you've heard Genesis 11 and Acts 2 read the same Sunday many times over because uh, Pentecost really reverses what happened at Babel. But notice that it reverses it not by erasing the cultural differences that came in in Genesis 11. So the Spirit doesn't make the people all the same to hear the message. He makes the message all different to reach the people, right? So that all these different people can now come together in unity under one head, Jesus Christ. So uh, if you're a parent and your kids are going to ask you uh, the answer to Sarah's question, then here it is. Uh, The the school children, it was safe to bring them back together uh, after Jesus had died for everybody's sins and sent the Holy Spirit to teach them to love each other. Uh, Pentecost is the point where it's safe for Babel to be reversed. Okay, so that's the one hand. Uh, Togetherness is good and is part of God's plan. and so the division of Babel was meant to be temporary, as Sarah said. But there is another side to this story. Um, and we don't say with the Greek myth that togetherness is always better. Because that's not what God's word says here in Genesis 11. It actually says the opposite. Uh, the separation of God's people at, at Babel wasn't just a discipline. Uh, we learned that God wanted the people to spread out in the first place. And it was their rebellion against God that kept them together. The scattering at Babel wasn't merely punitive. It got the people to do what God wanted them to do in the first place, which was to spread out. And the reason God wanted the people to spread out was because they had work to do, work that took them all over the world. So in the beginning, God commanded the children of Adam to spread out then he commanded the children of noah to spread out then when he called abraham god's very first word to him was go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that i will show you and jesus's very last word to his disciples was also go don't huddle here in jerusalem get out get out there to every nation on earth with the message And then in the book of Acts, they still mostly did huddle in Jerusalem until persecution drove them out into the world as Jesus wanted. So we have to notice that God has often worked in history to scatter people as well as to unite them. And Genesis 11 isn't the exception. It's actually closer to the rule. Um, You can't stay here in the safety of this tower. You've got to get out there because there's work to do. At the same time, we also see from this pattern that the people God scatters to do his work, they do okay. (laughs) They don't wither up from loneliness, as the Greeks would expect. They're actually not miserable. So we know that Jesus never found his soulmate, but he wasn't miserable. He was the most joyful and successful person ever. Abraham left Ur but he wasn't miserable and nor was Paul who left behind all the places where he was known and respected. He actually wrote that he was always rejoicing. Paul learned that as sweet as community and friendship and romantic love are, they are not necessary to our joy. Only God himself is truly necessary. So as I've been thinking about that this week, it seems to me that this is a lesson the American church urgently needs to relearn. Because is it possible that much of our desire to gather and settle and grow our churches comes more from the heart of Babel than it does from the heart of God? That it really comes from a desire to settle and build a place where we can be safe together and make a name for ourselves? And is it possible that in the name of community, we have hidden away our light in Christian enclaves and left the starving world to go to hell in darkness? Is it possible that the holy huddle is in fact deeply unholy and not really much different from rebuilding the tower of Babel? So now here we are in 2020, forcibly deprived of our community, maybe for the first time in our lives, And could it be that God has an important lesson for us in this moment? And he's asking us, can we find joy when there is no church? Will we let God himself be enough for us? We know that our future holds a time of gathering with God and all his people and then we'll never be separated again for all eternity. But while we wait for that day of gathering, there is still work to do work that might call us to leave behind the safety of friends and community and maybe give up marriage and romantic love. But friends, if it does, we're going to be okay. So now for our breakout groups, I want us to ask what stood out to you today from the story of the Tower of Babel? And was there anything God spoke to you today that you'd be willing to share? All right, send this out, Zach.